0: Restaurants Unstoppable, episode 843 with Patrick Whalen. In
1: fact, I'm a firm believer that, that most of your equity in a business is by way of the, the human capital that, that populates it. You have access today, uh, if someone's listening to this, you have access today to amazing people. And I think if you look around hard enough, they're there to be found um, if, you, if you're motivated.
0: Are you ready for it? Today's episode is brought to you by DiageoBarAcademy.com, and I could not be more excited to be partnering with Diageo because we have such similar missions. We want to share knowledge and transform the industry. Diageo Bar Academy equips bartenders, servers, managers, and hospitality professionals with the insights, stories, and tools to be better they are consistently raising the bar on industry standards. And no matter what your skill level is or knowledge or availability, there's something for you at DiageoBarAcademy.com. They have master classes and live events. And if you can't make those master classes or live events, there's recordings so you can watch it on demand at your convenience at www.diageobaracademy.com. That is D I A G E O baracademy.com. Get over there. unstoppable listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www7 slash unstoppable. That's the number seven, S H I F T S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. Today's episode is brought to you by Margin Edge, a restaurant management software that uses POS integration and invoice data to show you your food cost in real time. Margin Edge gives you your prime cost daily, so there's no surprises at the end of the month. By totally digitizing your back office, your team saves hours on paperwork and gets instant insights to manage food costs, labor, and budgets in the moment, not weeks after the period ends. With supply chain disruption and labor shortages, making real-time data-driven decisions is more important than ever. Because you are restaurant unstoppable listeners, Margin Edge is going to cover your onboarding costs. That means you get 60 days free to get started and up and running before you make your first payment. To learn more, head to m e dot margin dot com slash restaurant hyphen unstoppable or find the banner in the show notes what's going on unstoppables we have a great show for you today but a quick reminder that this podcast does need your support you can support our sponsors you can use our affiliate links that's anytime a tool or service is recommended on the show you can Subscribe, you can share this thing with everybody you know aspiring to be great in the industry, and you can come hang out in the network. Today, we're talking to Patrick Whalen, one of the original founders of Five Street Group. And uh, Patrick's story is he's from the South. He made his way up to the Northeast after college. Uh, he opened a restaurant at the age, I want to say it was 23, or I was a, actually a, a bar. Uh, they had a solid run. It was busy. He did a good job, but he didn't really do a great job aligning with uh, the vision of the space, or maybe he could have gotten a, a, a partnership agreement with the owners of the space, and uh, ultimately, he was forced out of that space. He decided he needed a mentor. He needed to get a little more experience, so he got a job at a bowling alley, uh, a high-volume bowling alley slash lounge in New York City which set him up to be able to join butter and C as the general manager at butter and C. he got tons of notoriety, uh, lots of respect within the industry, lots of accolades. And then he also met his future business partners. And I love this approach of just surrounding yourself with greatness, learning and networking and and finding people who are strong where you're weak and becoming a, a better unit together and going off and doing something of your own. And that's exactly what they did with five church, uh, in in Charlotte sorry in Charlotte with with Five Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. From there they've been opening restaurants all throughout the southeast. As of today, they own Five Church Charlotte Five Church Charleston, Tempest Charleston, Church and Union, which is their newest restaurant in Nashville, which is actually where we recorded today's episode. And you're really going to like this one. I know you are. So with no further ado, here he is, Patrick Whalen. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest CEO at the Fifth Street Group, Patrick Whalen. Patrick, my man, are you feeling unstoppable today? I'm feeling unstoppable. Yes, dude. I cannot wait to dive into your story. I love what you guys have created. But before we dive into it, let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quarter mantra. What do you got for us?
1: Um, Well, the easy one would be there's only we. We have that on our ceiling. But I actually like um, why not us? We used to say that a lot before we opened our first restaurant. Why not us? Because success always seems so far away when you don't have it. But then why, why would it be so hard? to get to if you're working hard and you're good at your job and so why not us why yeah. can't we open a restaurant group why can't we be successful
0: mindset man it's so mm-hmm. huge and i think that's something that it's very similar to something that comes up a lot on the show and it's just this idea of as soon as you say it can't happen to us it's, it's not right. possible your mind shuts off and it won't happen right mm-hmm. but as soon as you say why not us or how do we make it happen that that frontal lobe kicks into hyperdrive. And what were you what's the significance of there's only we get into that
1: there's only we was just uh, was a was a mantra that I've actually followed a lot of my life which is the belief that um the value that you provide individually um can be advanced um exponentially if you're able to surround yourself with like-minded people um who have a diverse um offering in terms of their skill set uh, that will complement what you're good at so um you could be um great by yourself or you could be amazing as part of a group of people and my preference has always been to uh, be part of a collective um ideally the legal collective but to be part of a collective because i think that allows us to to go further long term
0: yeah what about that person who's ready to be we but they don't have access to we yet they don't have the resources uh but they want to become we what's your advice for that person to get to that point where you can be we
1: well res- i mean the first resource is people so everyone has access to other people yeah um in fact I'm a firm believer that that most of your equity in a business is by way of the the human capital Mm -hmm. that that populates it and so you have access today uh, if someone's listening to this you have access today to amazing people and I think if you look around hard enough um, they're there to be found um, if you uh, if you're motivated
0: yeah and um, that's a little bit of a selfish question if I'm being honest because I'm trying to get to the point where Restaurant Unstoppable is more of a we. I have Jared amazing but I know there's if to scale, you need people and cash flow, right? Mm-hmm. So like, uh, you know, if you're, got, if you're listening to this and you think what I do is cool, you got to put it out there, right? You got to let people know we're looking to, to grow this thing. So don't be afraid to reach out to me. And where does it make sense to, to share your story? Like, when did you know that this was going to be your path?
1: The restaurant business? Yeah. Um, when I was 25, I um, opened a bar in Hoboken, New Jersey uh, that had actually been a laundromat with a liquor license, which Hoboken, New Jersey doesn't have a lot of liquor licenses, uh, certainly not available to a 25 year old. And so I took what I could get. I had a partner, um, and we opened up this sort of fly by the seat of your pants, martini bar, uh, in a basement, um, retail space. Like I said, with washers and dryers and, uh, it worked and we were busy from basically minute one. Maybe I was 26. I can't remember. And, um, and it was busy from minute one, and um, but it was very clear within a month or two of being open that I really didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I enjoyed um, being sort of in control and being able to make creative decisions, but I, I was overwhelmed with the the business side of the business, and so um, that was a short-lived venture. I think it was like seven or eight months, um, and at which point we I, I I left that gig and realized that that this is what I wanted. I wanted to be in business for myself, but I needed to, I needed to learn uh, a lot more before I was ready to go into business for myself.
0: So I saw that you graduated from uh, North Carolina. didn't chapel graduate. Hill. Oh, you just, you, I, you were at chapel. Hill. I
1: have like 150 credits. I think you need like <laughs> 120 to graduate. I just, I never passed. <laughs> this is true. I never passed Spanish, intermediate Spanish. and You need that for a BA.
0: That's kind of crazy yeah. in my mind. I mean, I don't know, but so you, you never gr- graduated college, right? Uh, so I see that you were there until 03. I'm um, assuming you were early 20s, 2021, when you decided mm-hmm. that college wasn't for I me. Mean, to get 150 college or credits, you must have been there for at least three years. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what happened between you dropping out of college and... I mean, is that the correct term? Is that what you did drop I don't want to make assumptions.
1: I mean, sure. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think I ran away from college. Okay. There's a better way of dropping out. It feels like I'm dropping into an abyss, whereas I was running to New York City to try to do something else.
0: But I mean, I think that what's intriguing about that is here you are, you know, pretty successful, right? And I think that there is a stigma in today's society that you need to go to college to be successful. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that there, it's almost like going to college can hurt you Mm -hmm. and it hurt me. Like I'm over $200,000 in school loan debt. Right. Mm -hmm. And it holds you back. Um, do you, do you have any regrets of not finishing?
1: No. Do I have any regrets of not finishing? No. Why not? Uh, Actually, that's not true. I would love to have finished for my parents. I think that they, um, they were very supportive of me throughout my educational process. And I think that they would have liked to have seen me graduate then. I don't think they care at all anymore, but, um, beyond that, no, I have zero regrets. Um, because I, I mean I, I got one hundred fifty credits I, I I got the college experience I learned what I needed to learn I suppose what were but, you learning what was your focus uh, history and uh, political science okay
0: um, d- would you recommend people go to college to get into what you're doing
1: to be in the restaurant business yeah. um, I don't think it hurts you i don't I don't think it I don't think it's a necessity. It's not like if you're trying to get your MBA and go and, you know, be in banking or something, I don't think you need, you don't need to go to
0: college, to undergrad, but um, it doesn't hurt to do it. So take us to that point where you decided that college wasn't for you. What was going on?
1: wasn't motivated by really anything that we were studying. Um, or if I, I was, I, I would get an A plus in the class or I would get a, a great grade. Um, but that was few and far between. I felt like a lot of my college experience, I'm sure a lot of people think this is sort of like, you know, connecting the dots. You're just saying, okay, well you took English one one now you have to take English, you know, two hundred one or one hundred two or whatever it is. Um, and that's not me. Uh, I, it's, I've never really been interested in, in following, um, that kind of a, a path uh it wasn't very creative yeah um, it was a lot of yeah you know, like I said paint by numbers and that you know that's not that's not what inspires me that 's what motivates me and so I, I, I struggled
0: what did motivate you at this time what was exciting for you at this time
1: I mean in college um, <laughs> i ran a I ran a casino out of my fraternity house uh, <laughs> actually um, I think theres statute of limitations is a few years so I think I'm okay now um, i yeah i ran a I ran a blackjack table and I would occasionally Deal craps and um, we I play poker all the time and and I ran it out of uh, the fraternity house in Chapel Hill um, and even though you know gambling has sort of a negative connotation I was ostensibly running a business yeah. with a lot of customers mm-hmm. uh, I actually ran lines of credit. Um, yeah. With all the people in the fraternity you house, didn't have break
0: any legs? Did you? No, no, okay, no.
1: Good. I never, I never <laughs> collected. I mean, if they didn't want to pay me, I guess that was up to them. But, um, but it was an interesting introduction into entrepreneurship. It was you know, I didn't have backers uh, for a casino uh, or for blackjack. I just had you know maybe a few hundred dollars cash to start, and um, and it was a pretty popular thing for a while. Yeah. And um, it put me in control uh, socially in a way that I. Hadn't been before, and I really liked
0: that. So even going back to this time, you're bringing people together, you're creating an event, you're hosting. You know, so so it seems like it's a part of you, uh, or I don't want to put words into your your mouth either. But is that accurate? Sure, I yeah. think that's fair. Yeah. So when you decided that college wasn't for you, what's going through your mind? What what were you? What was your plan?
1: I just go see the world. I, I didn't really have a great plan. I just knew that that wasn't right. Yeah, Um, and sometimes when you know something's right the best thing to do is just get away from that first before you can start finding your path Um, I was working in restaurants at the time um, and so that was something that I liked that I could go back to and and occupy my mind but but I didn't really have one I moved to New York Um, I went to acting school actually in New York City for a couple years um, to see if that was going to stir something Uh, it was fun but it wasn't uh, what I was looking for um, and again, the whole time I was working in restaurants and I just kind of, it was like a gravity just kind of kept pulling me back. Mm.
0: Um, at this point, did you have any inclination that this might be something, the restaurant industry, the restaurant industry might be something that you do that might be no. your path? No.
1: No. I mean, I, I was working in, I worked at a restaurant in Times Square, which was like a total zoo. Yeah. Um, uh, so I got lots of experience um, and I liked my job. I liked my work, but. The restaurant managers that I worked with were like some of the most unhappy people I'd ever met in my whole life. Mm. So, you know, if the pathway to leadership in restaurants was to have to be that person, I just I wanted nothing to do with that.
0: That, that didn't discourage you going forward? Uh, it was, I had some I had
1: I think I had some second thoughts once I started making real serious decisions about moving forward. I didn't consider it when I first moved to New York, it was not something that I was seriously thinking about.
0: Okay. So I see that it was in 2007 that you went to go work with, um, frames bowling lounge. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming that this was your, okay, I have a lot to learn. This is after you decided to mm-hmm. y- your failure. i want to call it a failure, but your, your first, the bar. Yeah. The bar, Actually the it was, a, it bar. was a
1: great success. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was a great success, but my, my business partners were not, Um, interested in pursuing that success
0: what led into the martini bar because i mean you you left school in oh three you were 26 i'm assuming this is around 2006 just before 2007
1: 2003 i was 23 okay um i think it was 2005 or 6 when i i went for the bar but um what led into it was i i i looked at the people that were successful at the time in the restaurant business and i started to feel a pull um, and my boss at one of the bars I worked at two Irish pubs in Hoboken, New Jersey. And one of the, my bo- my boss asked me, "Would you know? Would you like to start um, doing inventory? I'll pay you fifty bucks a week per store." And uh, I said, "Okay, sure. I'll do inventory. I'll make a little extra money." And it was interesting to me, and I learned about a lot of product. Um, and then I was doing that well, and so I started taking on more and more responsibilities at the at the places I was working, um, and that got me very excited. Um, I saw a real path forward. Rather than being like interested, I was like, "Whoa, I I could do this um, job," and that's when it kind of the light went off. I suppose.
0: What started, what really got you excited? Was it actually doing inventory that excited you? Because what people rare. were ordering. <laughs> okay. What people were? No, I hate inventory. Okay, going to say that's, <laughs> no. a unique beast. Somebody's doing it in my restaurant right now. Yeah, um, right.
1: Uh, I, I I was very interested in what people ordered and why they ordered it. Um I think my interest in the restaurant business have always had a base in, in a sociological uh place. Um why do they order that and you know, what nights are we selling what? Um you know that it, it talks a lot about human behavior and, and what people are seeking when they go out, what they buy, um, particularly in a restaurant. And so um that was that was like the hook. Mm. that was a real hook for me and
0: you said you also were, you were looking to people who were successful who were the mm. people that you were looking to at the time and how did they inspire you
1: I mean the, I don't know if this is exactly the same time it was it was concurrent but I mean Danny Meyer is I read setting the table when I was I don't know, 26 or 27 and he he put to words how I felt at the time about the restaurant business um, and about hospitality in general and about people and leadership um, and so I really enjoyed um, reading that book I've read it a bunch of times I've made my staff and management read it at the restaurants. Um, so I think he was sort of the, he was sort of the, the pinnacle of what I wanted. Um, my boss at, at frames was someone that
0: I, I thought I could uh, look to, but unfortunately that was not how it turned out. Okay. So let's get into you opening your first business, the mm-hmm. martini bar. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're not counting the, the gambling that was going on in college, sure. I guess, let's in not count that. <laughs> yeah. Well, we won't <laughs> count that. Uh, Reflect, like knowing what you know now opening a total of how many total restaurants have you opened collectively oh ever uh, i think maybe nine or ten at this point okay so that's a lot of experience opening restaurants uh knowing what you know now reflecting back at that time what like what advice like no like what, what would you have done differently what advice would you have given the, the past version of yourself
1: don't trust anybody if you want the honest truth is that is you have to, you have to believe in yourself first. Now you can, you can, um, build relationships with people and, and, um, learn to work together with them. But, uh, that place, which was called the basement, um, was my first foray into, uh, partnerships and landlords. And, uh, I think it was a good, um, Playsetter for my experience since then which is that i've been successful but my success has been marked by um some some tough relationships
0: so what, what did you learn about these relationships um things that you could have done differently in these relationships or i mean what is like the lesson to uh, beyond, yeah. beyond just don't trust sure. get burnt like would you protect yourself some way more people care a lot more about money than i
1: do Um, that doesn't mean that I don't want to have money. I have a family and it's important to have it obviously, but, but I don't put money as the first priority, um, uh, in a restaurant or in any business for that matter. I think it's a priority in so much as that it needs to keep the business open and profiting and all that good stuff. But, um, the sort of blind pursuit of making as much as you possibly can, which I've known a lot of people that fit that profile, uh, I find kind of crass and unpleasant and typically those people are, are unhappy yeah. <laughs> from what I've seen. Whereas the people that are really inspired and excited about the work that they do, whether they make money or they don't are the ones that I've found myself spending the most time with.
0: So, knowing what you know about partnerships now, would there, there have been any exercises you would have gone through? Any uh, documents you would have brought into the situation to have protected yourself?
1: I would have done more background
0: checks. Okay. Um, anything else that you would have done differently or you learn from that experience.
1: No, I mean, I learn from the experience. I mean, you could fill a book, um, but, but done differently. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I would love to say that I could have anticipated a lot of this stuff, um, that, that, that we've gone through that I've gone through personally, but I don't know that that's true. I think part of learning how to be in business is learning what people's priorities are. And the only way you're going to really learn what someone's priority is, is when you push them when you're in tough situations, Um, and you know, it's easy to every, every friends when you're doing well. So like,
0: is, do you have as much skin in the game as I do? Is that what you mean by what your priorities are? Are you going to match my effort? Uh,
1: priorities in terms of what they're seeking versus what I'm seeking. Okay. Vision. Yeah. Um, values. Yeah. What are we trying to get out of this?
0: Do we align? Mm -hmm. I love it. Um, you said you didn't know what you were doing. Mm -hmm. Quote unquote. Yeah. Uh, as far as operations go, mm-hmm. things that you were doing then that you do differently now, like what were the biggest things that you do now that you didn't do then? I
1: mean, probably everything. This was when I was <laughs> twenty six and I'm forty one. Um, uh, you know, I I I didn't know a whole lot, and so ordering systems and um, you know scheduling and labor budgets and how to promote the business and use actually Facebook wasn't really a thing then, but use social media yeah. to, to advance your brand and brand management, I think is a, is a big part of it. Um, I, I didn't know any of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I literally, there was a, an article that got posted just discussing our bar opening at the basement. And, um, and when I went, my way of promoting was to constantly write comments on the, uh, on the articles uh, comment section to try to promote the rest, the, promote the bar. So, <laughs> so I just kept commenting on this, this post for like months after it had gone up. Nobody was reading anymore, but I was like, well, someone could look at this. And yeah. so that's good promotion.
0: So six months uh, into your first ownership, uh, the martini bar, what was it called the basement. Mm-hmm. Uh, you decide to, did the business continue to go, or did you leave, or did the business close?
1: The two, we'll call them senior partners, uh, decided that they did not want to continue with the basement. They wanted to open a restaurant there. We'd sort of proven the viability of the location by uh, my partner, whose name was Wayne, although he went by Bubba. And I uh, really successfully launched the space, brought a lot of positive attention to it. I think the the two um, principal owners of the space um, – they saw that the space could be successful, and so they ended up opening a restaurant there. Um, so
0: the business was successful. You you had you, you proven the the location. What was it that made you like? Was it just they they wanted something different? There was yes. a mis- mismatch of alignment. Yeah, yeah
1: they The, the I, in my opinion, um, I think they got greedy, and they either wanted us to give them a big payday to walk, um, or they wanted us out so that they could do something there. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. In fact, I know that's what happened.
0: Um, so. You kind of get burnt in this relationship, this scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, you're still, I mean, was there, at this point, are you like, this is exactly what I would do? I'm, I'm on the right path. This mm-hmm. is what I want to make my life. What was it exactly that made you fall in love with what you are doing?
1: You could see relatively, okay, so part of my, this is a little bit of a longer answer. Part of my objection to education and why I struggled in college was that, and in high school for that matter, was that, I, I had a hard time finding a tangible result from the application of the new knowledge I had. It was all theoretical. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and some of the things you learn in college, I had no application for. Um, you know, I took a, a couple of history classes that were uh, ancient Asian, uh, Asian history, and I was like just totally lost. Um, whereas um, in the restaurant business or in the bar business, somebody comes in and they say, okay, if you carry a bottle of Johnny Walker Blue, I'm going to come in every night and I'm going to have two drinks. And so I carry a bottle of Johnny Walker Blue. This person comes in every night, has two drinks. And not only that, but this person's got friends, and they bring a couple people in, and they start ordering products. So you have the ability as the operator to, to really sink or swim based on the decisions that you make, and you can see in real time mm-hmm. the results of those decisions either working or not. Um, that's, I mean, first of all, it's an adrenaline rush. Um, secondly, it's, it's, it's very satisfying, mm-hmm. um, very validating and, and third, it, it's, it's a great teacher of things. Um, you know, it, you learn really quickly a certain range of things that will work and you learn very quickly also the things that won't work. Um, and I, and I like that. Yeah. I, I like that,
0: that Dinah, was a dynamicism, how dynamic it is. Yeah. I mean, it's that instant satisfaction, the cookie, like we get the, mm-hmm. we all work to, I think we all want to be seen. We all want to be valued. We all want to have our our, our ultimate purpose in life. And when we, when we get to see that the end result of our effort, mm-hmm. it's that satisfaction, that cookie. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things of what you're describing right, right now is one of the things that really concerns me about the direction we're going in with this industry. Because mm-hmm. we're going in a direction where you no longer get the end result. You no longer get the cookie. And so many people in this industry... That's why we're here is for that immediate satisfaction, that approval, mm-hmm. that you're happy. And that's what, that's what feeds my soul. We're not doing this for the money. We're doing this because we, we, we love the reward of doing a job well done, mm-hmm. right? And you rem- you're going to eliminate that re- reward. Like what's going to happen to the mental health of the people in this industry where we're, where we're just fucking slaving mm-hmm. and not getting the cookie, mm-hmm. right? What are your thoughts on that?
1: I think that... Um I think that when you're able to economically provide an environment where people can make enough to take this career seriously, um, I think that that will be a cookie for them. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the incentive for them, where they're like, okay, my life has value. Um, This is going in a certain direction. I feel compelled um because I can make enough and I can do something that I love doing. Yeah.
0: Man, I sure hope that's the case. I really do. That that
1: I think when you when you when you make it so people don't have to worry about their income um that it's a steady paycheck and that it's going to be there sort of no matter what. Yeah. Um they can start to focus on learning what they're doing rather than just doing it. You know, Mm -hmm. they come in, they do their job. I think of like a line cook, for example, they come in, they make, you know, whatever is off their station a hundred times a night, 200 times a night, and then they leave. And that's not very compelling, especially when you're coming home and you're broke. Um, But when you come home and you've got a full wallet and you feel like, oh, the rent's covered and I can put some money in the bank, you can start thinking about like, what am I doing? Why am I making, why am I doing all these reps? You know, when you're, when you're an athlete, you go to the gym and you work out. And you, you bench press and you do all this stuff. It's like that's not fun for anybody. Nobody likes doing that. But you do that for the purpose of advancing your your athletic career, whether that's in high school or college or, or beyond. Um, you know, ostensibly, that's what the guys online or the servers are doing. They're getting reps in an industry that's totally viable for them as a career, but they don't look at it that way because they're not making the money to stay in the career.
0: Yeah, I'm interested. I really want to pull back the layers on that, but mm-hmm. I want to save that until we get to sure. current time to know what your plan for doing that for your team sure. is. Uh, but you, you, after six months, you leave. Your, your partners push you out mismatch and alignment and vision and uh, what they wanted that space to be. You realize that you need to know more. You need to, you need to learn more before you do this again. You go uh, and you seek out mentorship in mm-hmm. frames, bowling lounge. Turns out that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were there for two years though. So mm-hmm. take us briefly through what happened in that scenario. And I know that you spent some time with um, the butter group too, and I'm assuming mm-hmm. that's where you really grew the most. Um, but I- assumptions can get you trouble. <laughs> yeah. Uh.
1: I went to work at frames and I think I got out of it. What I wanted generally it was a big operation. It was in midtown Manhattan. We did a lot of revenue. Um, we had a lot of different kinds of revenues. There was food, there was alcohol. It was a bowling facility. They had a sort of a nightlife component to it. Um, and that was, that was a really interesting job because uh, you know, if, if I'm fascinated by people drinking Johnny Walker blue or what they drink, I mean, this is, a whole different ball game it was like a thirty five thousand square foot facility, so I really got the chance to see a big operation up close um, The mentorship that you talked about i you know I thought I was getting the guy I was learning from um I've found out since then really didn't know uh what he said he knew um which is fine I mean you learn you learn the wrong way yeah. uh, you learn a lot from the wrong way too uh, and he knew some things but but um, but I think that exposure to, to a big store that's able to, I mean, I don't know what they're doing now, but, but that's able to do 10 plus million dollars a year, I think opens up, um, a different perspective than most people in the restaurant business. Most people are not doing that kind of, um, revenue ever from one store. Yeah. Uh, but that's what I wanted. I wanted a store that
0: could do that. So what were the biggest lessons you learned, even if it was what not to do?
1: Mm hmm. Um, be empathetic, um, retain your staff, As long as you possibly can, Um, and what else? Make money, by that I mean revenue, all day rather than trying to make a ton in a small window of time. So the days that we were really successful there were the days where we would be booked from 11 a.m. until 11 p.m. or 1 a.m. or whatever it was. Uh, Whereas we might have huge days on the weekend. But it's all compressed down into a two three hour window, which is very stressful. It's mm-hmm. hard to execute. Um, it's better to 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 do it at a high level all day than do it at an extremely high level for a small window.
0: So, what were you doing, or what were they doing, to maintain that high level of operation, or of, I guess volume mm-hmm. all day? Was it events? Was it yeah? We had
1: we had tons of events. Uh, we were in we were in a highly trafficked um, area of Midtown. Yeah. Um. It was also like the most disgusting building in Midtown, but, um, but we, were, we were constantly surrounded by people. And so there was a natural flow of people. We also had a sales department. I think there was like four people in it. Um, that drove traffic. And then we also developed, actually I did, um, some social leagues, which are now very common, but at the time really didn't exist a whole lot. And um, that drove traffic as well.
0: Yeah, so getting creative and realizing that you're in the business of experience and events, not just food production, but Mm -hmm. creating those experiences. Mm -hmm. Uh, You said uh, retaining staff. Was there a story tied to this?
1: Um, No, I mean, it it was a huge staff. I mean, it was a big place and it was a big staff. And so um, your staff is a a commodity. and, And if you are constantly turning it over, it's a cost for you. Whereas if you're able to retain it, not only is it saving you money, but you're also... Sort of from from a high level standpoint, you're you're putting out better product yeah. consistently to um, your guests, mm-hmm. or even if you're not putting out better product, you're putting it out more efficiently because yep. people are fast; they know how to do the job. Um, you don't need to not you know, constantly train them on you know where to go or what to do. Um, it just made my job easier um, and less stressful, and allowed me to spend time on learning more of the business. So,
0: what were you doing to re- retain staff? What did you start doing differently to make sure you were retaining staff?
1: We, uh, I developed, a, um, it was a tip pool system. That was, I think the biggest uh, step. Obviously we had lots of business and so they're making money. Um, but I think the tip pool system, uh, and I was a server for a long time. So, I mean, I, I understand that some servers don't like There's tip a
0: lot pools. of pushback with that sometimes, but yeah.
1: our tip pool system was a little bit different than most. Um, we have this extra wrinkle, which is called the bonus. And what it means is, is that you tip share up to 15% of your tips, and that gets tipped out to your bar back and your food, whatever. Um, but then beyond 15%, you keep. The server keeps. And this is a system that I wished, you know, when I waited tables, it would make me crazy. I'd work at tip, tip shares. And you know, at the time, I would drop 22%, 23%, which was like a very high tip percentage, um, especially for Times Square. And um, But but I would walk with, you know, 15% or 16% um, of 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 my sales. And that was very frustrating for me. Um, so the the bonus, the system that we developed or that I developed was um, that you would you know, you'd drop fifteen percent into the pool, and then you would keep whatever was left for yourself. And so it kind of got the best of both worlds, where the insurance and the financial stability that a tip share provides to um, the staff, which helps with turnover, was there. Mm-hmm. But also, you weren't de incentivized as a, as a lead server as a top server from from Working there because you could still make yeah. lots of money uh, for yourself.
0: So, if a server made a hundred dollars, I mean that's mm-hmm. a, probably a low number, but an easy number to work with. You mm-hmm. would take they would take fifteen dollars, put it into the pool, and keep seventy. No, or, the, if sorry, the 85. server
1: if the server okay, so if the server did say a thousand dollars in sales, okay. um, and they received two hundred dollars in tips, okay. hundred fifty dollars of that they would share in the tip share, and obviously they're getting a lot of that back too. Mm-hmm. But the other $50, the 5% difference between 15 and 20%, they would just, I got mean, it. they declared it. I mean, we, 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 we accounted for it for the government, but, um, but they, they pocketed that.
0: Got it. Uh, so, uh, ultimately, what made you want to leave this location? Um,
1: I got uh, offered, well, my wife was pregnant, and um, there's lots of reasons, but my wife was pregnant, and uh, we were living in Jersey City, New Jersey at the time, and um, I just didn't want to be in New York anymore with a kid, and I thought mm-hmm. that was going to be too much and so i was my family lived in charlotte and um i had a lot of friends there and ironically the butter group was opening a butter in charlotte north carolina which i thought was um incredible and and (laughs) retrospectively uh a little crazy um and so i went and interviewed for the job and got
0: the job what was the job you were interviewing for
1: the general manager of butter
0: got it um what i mean was this a different experience? Were they doing things differently that you have never seen before? I mean, it was, here? yeah, it was a
1: night I mean it was, an, it was a nightclub, but not only was it a nightclub it was a it was a um celebrity driven promotions driven nightclub, so it's the place that you read about maybe on page six in The New York Post in New York or you read about in the gossip columns or us weekly you know so and so was seen at x y club well the the group that I worked for had a club called one I uh, still does uh, uh, One Oak. Um, which was enormously successful, still is. They've got locations now in Vegas and um, all, I mean Tokyo, and I think they're about to open Shanghai. They're just they're a huge group, and um, and I got in uh, early with them. It was like their third store, and it was Butter and Sea, and so I was real. The whole thing was just was a completely foreign business model to me. Uh, I was in the restaurant business. Yeah. I didn't know the first thing
0: about nightclubs and bottle service and all that stuff. So did you find your mentor here? Uh no. Okay. Well, you spent 3 years here. Yeah, so two, it was 2 oh, years there. 2000 I saw 2009 to 2012 uh just before opening oh, yeah. uh, Five Church in uh yeah. Charlotte. So what what was going on here that led to your success with uh Five Church? Um
1: on the on the operations side I learned what brand management was and how important that is. Um I'd never really known that before. I knew it was a thing. I didn't know how important it was. On the expansion side, like what I was going to do next, I met um, Alejandro Torrio, who's my business partner. And he, he's a director of promotions um, for the Fifth Street Group, but he was a director of promotions for Butter and Sea. And he was sort of my, um, what do you want to call that? He was my, my marketing version of me a promotional version of me where he, in my opinion, was an expert on his field. And it was a field that I knew almost nothing about. And it was very exciting to meet someone who so profoundly understood, um, an area that I wanted to learn, um, desperately. So that was what really launched it.
0: So if his lane at this point is marketing promotion, what's your lane operations ops? Yeah. Operations. Okay. Okay. Um, what, you said brand management. You learned a lot about brand management. What is brand management in your words?
1: Um, it's understanding that, that how, people, how people think of your company um, is uh, when they're not in the restaurant. Um, how people perceive what you all do and where you sort of stack up within your – either in your field or in your subfield – Um, You know, I'm in the restaurant business, but I'm in the full-service restaurant business, but I'm in the market full-service business. Um, So each one of those has its own sort of, like, category and ranking. And so understanding sort of where you fall and why you fall there and what you can do to control that is brand management.
0: Okay. Um, So, like, a lot of, the psychographics, right? So what – I mean, are there any key lessons specifically that you could – Pass forward, pay forward to the people listening to this around brand management to to influence brand management?
1: Um that every decision matters. Uh everything that you say publicly has an impact on the brand. But more importantly, is is the best way to change people's perception of your brand is to put out a great product. Yeah. You know, you can you can hire promotional PR companies and you can hire um you know, marketing teams and and all that, but at the end of the day, best way to manage your brand is to know what kind of product do you want to put out and then put that product out and make people happy. How do you maintain that standard of what you're trying to do? Uh, you raise hell. What do you mean by that? There's something that you're going to ask me later, <laughs> Later, I think, but I'll tell you now is, is I don't let uh, bullshit answers go unrebutted ever in any capacity. And I think that has been a deciding factor in our company is that Not only can I not deal with BS answers, but it makes it makes me feel sick and angry and crazed when people are not um, they're not doing their job as described uh, and then they lie about it or they BS or whatever. It makes me feel insane because it disrupts your sense of trust and your sense of trust is what allows you to to do more than one thing at a time because you can delegate. And so um, I think that's.
0: So having those standards and not budging Mm -hmm. and really holding people accountable to meeting the standard.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think uh, making sure that people understand that there's going to be good days, there's going to be bad days. And we understand both, that you're going to make mistakes and you're going to have successes. But it's the times when you are not um, straight about what you're doing or hoping that you will only have successes. No one only has successes. And it's very, very frustrating to manage somebody or to work with somebody who um, is unable to take responsibility for their failures
0: um, or their mistakes or whatever. What if they do fail, but they're like, I totally fucked up.
1: It's I mean, awesome. I, I mean, <laughs> uh, I, I fucked up are the three most important words in the restaurant business. Yeah. Uh, I, I might argue they're the most three, three most important words in life. Why? Because we all do. Mm. You know we all make mistakes we make mistakes daily and the capacity to be to be able to learn from those mistakes and move on I believe starts with acknowledging the mistakes taking responsibility for them um, owning them and then trying to figure out why the mistake was made and what needs to be done to make sure it doesn't happen again
0: so regarding maintaining that brand man, that brand image uh, how do you communicate the standards to make sure they're being held
1: that's a very big question. Yeah. Um, a lot of it is is empowerment. A lot of it is is going to your team, no matter what position they are. You know, you're a GM, you're a server, you're a line cook, you're a dishwasher. Doesn't matter. And empowering them to be able to do their job in a way that makes them feel proud of what they do. I don't care what they do. Um, and most of the time, what what we've seen is the best way to do that is to show a path that they could walk down if they continue to do what they're doing yes. to give them a sense of scale yes. and perspective that, like I said before, it's hard to have when you're like, you know, elbow deep in a pot, you know, washing, you know, junk off of a, a pot or pan or, you know, when you're getting, you know, reamed out by a, a un, unruly customer or a rude customer, I think it's hard to have that perspective. And so um, a lot of what we do, and I'm going to say we, because I think that the company does this, but it, I, 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 I feel like it starts, with me is there's only we totally (laughs) i mean i firmly believe that but i think it starts with us saying okay why are you doing this okay then here's the path or here's another path or here's another path you have options you don't have to feel trapped you don't have to feel frustrated yeah outside of the the sort of visceral frustration of having to wash a pan or having to deal with unruly customer the long game it doesn't have to look so bleak with us
0: yeah and i'm constantly Echoing Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm-hmm. right above being seen and recognized, is personal growth. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not enough to give people purpose within your organization, but they need to know there's something beyond that. And you, and I did an amazing workshop with Nick Cirillo mm-hmm. from Nick's Pizza, based just outside of um, Chicago. And he, he taught us how to build that tan- – he calls it tangible framing within your – Your business, so people get hired, and they say, "Here are the paths, and here's how you get. Here's exactly what you need to do to get to this point. Here's Mm -hmm. exactly what you need to do to get to this point." So people from day one know there's opportunity. Um, Are you doing similar things?
1: Yes, I mean, we. uh, I was just discussing this actually this morning with a couple people that work for me. That um, our general manager at, at Five Church Charlotte started with us as an intern. Um, and our executive chef, uh, or actually our, our chef partner at uh, this restaurant and several other, Adam Hodgson started this as a line cook. It's
0: all about creating opportunity,
1: and so as long as there is a path, um, I think people see it and it feels accessible. Uh, doesn't mean everybody's going to walk it. Doesn't mean everybody, everybody wants it. But as long as it's there, it's it's a form of sort of stress relief from my perspective. That that it's like okay, if I keep doing this and I do it the right way, I am going to get noticed. And I'm going to be given opportunity and that opportunity is something that's real. It's not just strung out. You know, it's not, it's not some, you know, BS just to keep me doing, you know, what I'm doing. It's, it's real and that and I can believe in it. And so we, we've been exceedingly successful, I think, at doing that and building that company culture.
0: I can't wait to pull back the layers on that, but I think now's a great time to take our first break, to thank our sponsors. And we'll be right back to talk about how you and Alejandro got into five church together. Today's episode is brought to you by Margin Edge. Margin Edge is a restaurant management software that uses POS integration and invoice data to show you your food costs in real time. The beauty of Margin Edge is that the information is immediately available. You take a picture and boom, you have access to it just in time and everything that Margin Edge does is aimed at making your restaurant more efficient. So what exactly do you get with Margin Edge? With Margin Edge, you get automatic invoice processing. You can do this by either taking photos with their app, scanning slash emailing files or integrating it with a electronic data interchange. You can get daily controllable P&L, including labor data. You can get recipe costing and menu analysis tools, not to mention you also get inventory management and actual versus theoretical usage reports. Margin Edge gives you the prime cost daily. So there are no surprises at the end of the month. By totally digitizing your back office, your team saves hours on paperwork and gets real-time data to manage food costs, labor, and budgets in the moment not weeks after the period ends. With supply chain disruption and labor shortages, making real-time data-driven decisions is more important than ever. Because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, Margin Edge will cover your onboarding. That means you get 60 days free to get started and up and running before you make your first payment. To learn more, head to me.marginedge.com. Com slash restaurant hyphen unstoppable or find the banner in the show notes. We're back and now it's time to talk about how you broke off to do your own thing. So just get into that whole story of how five church started.
1: Um, Alejandro texted me and he said that a space in uptown Charlotte that had been a Scottish pub had closed and was available and we had been looking, uh, Alejandra and our other partner, Mills Howell, um, and I had been looking, um, and we had found Jamie, uh, Chef Jamie Lynch, by that point, and we were really ready. Is he up in Boston now? No, he was in Charlotte at that point. Okay. Oh, is he in Boston this moment? Yeah. Oh, I don't know where
0: Bar-Mazana? he is. Or I don't know. I feel like that name is really familiar. Sorry, it's I quite going. possible. Yeah. I
1: don't, I, we, 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 we don't wear the uh, magnetic ankle bracelets anymore, <laughs> so we never know where we are. Um, but, but we were ready. Uh, to open something. We were really ready. You know, we were still working at butter at the time. uh, Jamie was working at a restaurant called Barrington's in in Myers park in Charlotte. Um, And Alejandro saw the space. We got in touch with our broker uh, who's still our broker actually. And um, did the deal. The location that we found, which was on the corner of fifth and church street, that's the name was by all standards of measure, a jinxed location. I'm sure everyone in the restaurant business could quickly think of a location in their neighborhood that's a quote-unquote jinx location. Um, I don't believe in jinx locations. I think that's a bunch of nonsense. I think think everything happens for a reason. Um, And in this case, our location was quote-unquote jinxed because the landlord didn't do a great job of vetting um, his uh, potential tenants. What percentage of restaurants fail? It's a pretty, pretty so hard, the, pretty hardy percentage. The likelihood
0: <laughs> of three or four locations failing right. consecutively—the right. odds are good.
1: Well, this was like, I think in ten years he had seven tenants, and then there was two years where it was empty. It was really sort of—it was really a, a, a dumping ground for bad ideas. But I think we were the beneficiaries of that because his threshold for allowing people to take the space was pretty low. And he was pretty desperate. Was
0: he lowering the bar as far as rent and stuff to make sure? I mean, that- the rent's dirt cheap. Okay.
1: It, the rent now is dirt cheap. It's, it's, it's laughably cheap. Um, our power bill at Five Church Charleston was higher than our first year what? rent. <laughs> um, and so, um, so you make, you know, you make the, when you're young and you're an entrepreneur, you try to make the best of a, of a bad situation. Um, and the bad situation was the location was undesirable. And so we went in and did a full cosmetic upfit. We saved a bunch of money because the kitchen was already in place. There was some equipment in place. Um, We got the place open for, I think, $550,000, which, again, is laughable by comparison to what we have to spend now. And um, Alejandro was in charge of marketing promotions. Chef Jamie was in charge of the food. I was in charge of the operations. We all knew lots of people in Charlotte. People were excited for us. And the space was really cool and fun and different, and we just – took off i mean almost i'm not gonna say instantaneously but within six months it was clear we were a real big hit yeah and uh people didn't know quite what to make of us
0: now, one of the issues you had with your first restaurant the martini bar uh was that you didn't have alignment with your partners mm-hmm. explain the difference between the dynamic between those partners and this and this dynamic and why it worked
1: i'm gonna blame myself uh for the basement not having a because I didn't know who my partners were. I didn't know I didn't know anything. Um, whereas by the time Five Church came around, which was you know several years later, and working for a lot of different people, I knew what I wanted in a partner. I knew where at least some of my weaknesses were as an operator, and I knew the kind of personality of the person that I wanted to work with, or people that I wanted to work with. Um, and I wanted to have final say. So I think that was a really important thing for me. I wanted to have the ability to have control. Over what we were doing, um, because autonomy—it's huge. It, it, I mean, having agency. Um, if I if I was going to give one piece of advice to somebody in my position, is make sure you have agency. Make sure you have the ability to what say. What do you mean by agency? You have control. You have your own ability to control the outcome of what happens. So when everyone bets on you you're not relying on um, you know a manager or a chef or another partner you're, it's entirely based on your performance um, and obviously a little bit of luck
0: and a little bit of fate and all that good stuff okay so you said you know you knew your weaknesses now you knew your weaknesses now and you knew what you were looking for what mm-hmm. were your weaknesses and what were you looking for i
1: didn't know how to i didn't know how to reach out to people beyond the brick and mortar of the building. So in other words, once the guests got into the restaurant, I felt very comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew we'd be able to serve good food. I knew we'd have good service. I knew how to make lots of drinks. I knew about wine, kind of. Um, but I didn't know how to move people. Um, and that's really what a promoter's job is, a, marketer's jo- a marketing person's job is, is to, is to motivate people to break their habit Okay, it's Tuesday. I'm going to go eat at you know Joe's Bar and Grill, and I'm going to get my Caesar salad. I'm going to get a cheeseburger. I'm going go to bed. And what what you have to do as a new business is you have to give them a reason to break that habit um, and to come try you out. And then when they try you out, obviously you need to impress them. I, I didn't have that skill set, and so um, or at least not the way that I wanted to to be able to be to be busy and successful fairly quickly. Um, whereas. Uh, Alejandro had that in spades. Um, Further, I also didn't know how to put out great food. I knew how to put out good food, um, but Jamie was able to make great food. And so those two things, I think if it had just been me, I think we would have been successful. But I think that Jamie and Alejandro were the game changers in so much as that they both were excellent at their respective areas. And so we were able to go further and faster because of it.
0: Okay, so um, also the power of three. Mm-hmm. We'll get into that. Do you know where I'm going with that? No. So partnerships. You mean they, like the Holy Trinity and well, whatnot? <laughs> in partnerships, they say, always try to have an odd number, and there seems to be, uh, I think I think three, usually somebody to represent the back of house, somebody to represent the front of house, operations person, and then that third person that brings something, whether it be back back of house, whether it's accounting and finance or mm-hmm. a lawyer. But there, whenever there's that third person that covers something that's crucial to the success of a business, whether it be all those like details or marketing promotion. Uh, but then on top of that, to have three partners, that I mean, there's never going to be a, a tie. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. There's always going to be a swing tie. Boat. Yeah. Right. So, get in. Has that served you? I,
1: no, <laughs> it's a good lead-in, but no. I mean, we've had lots of partners. Yeah. Um, and we have had different um, sort of configurations of how decision-making apparatus. Uh, our decision-making apparatus is applied um i think that um there are times where i will completely defer to alejandro or jamie to make a decision um and and vice versa but i I don't think that there's a magic number i think it's about finding the right people Mm -hmm. if you can find 10 of the right people great as long as it's clear how a decision is made. I think that's really where people get stuck, and that's why three is such a convenient number because because there's a tiebreaker. Um, I'd rather have 50 than two others. I'd rather have 100 talented people that are going to give me great inf- information and great advice and have expertise on a whole variety of areas. And that's sort of what our company is now. Um, that's my preference. The more, the, more, the, more, the more people that are like-minded in terms of how they work, but diverse in terms of what they work on in their knowledge set is, is great for business. Diversifying skill set, mm-hmm. so
0: you have, you're well-rounded. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that. I mean, the other thing I think that you mentioned that is key, too, is that you opened a restaurant where you have roots, where you mm-hmm. have a network, where people mm-hmm. know you. How was that significant?
1: That was, I mean, I, I think that had a lot to do with our early success, was that, is that we had friends that yeah. were ready to support us. Um, we had friends that were ready to talk about us and um, and that's not just our personal friends, but people in the business that, that knew us and were excited for us to get a chance.
0: Were these friends influencers, people that were well-connected? Everything, that, yeah. So getting to an example of the type of friends you want to make that served you.
1: Um, I think most of the people that knew me before we opened respected that I knew what I was doing. Uh, certainly the vendors and other chefs in Charlotte respected what Jamie was doing. And I think... Um, because of that. Now, people didn't really know Alejandro in the restaurant world at that point. Um, they didn't, you don't, most restaurants don't ha- have a promoter. <laughs> yeah. They're usually behind the scenes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, right. but, but I mean, from a credibility standpoint, I think both, Alej- both Jamie and I brought enough to the table to get people excited. I, yeah. yeah. they are yeah. like, Oh, okay. Uh, you know, we've heard of these guys and, oh, they were running this place or that place. And I've heard of that too. And that's the brand association. I was talking, you know, Okay. I get it, and I dig it, and they look at a couple pictures. Okay, I'm, I'm into this. Um, that is how I think that the early decisions were made whether or not to come try out a restaurant or not.
0: Got it. Um, so, I mean, you, you obviously did really great. Uh, within three years, 2015, you opened Five Street Charleston. Did you open any other locations in Charlotte, or was it just... Yes. Because I don't see those um, on, the, on your... Um yeah, we've deleted those. Okay.
1: so <laughs> We had one. We, uh, we opened a restaurant in South End um, called Nan and Byron's.
0: Okay. What happened there? When did it close?
1: Uh, we sold it. Uh, we sold it in 2016.
0: A year after opening Fifth Street or uh, Five we op- Street. Yeah. We opened Sorry, f- Five Church. <laughs> we opened
1: Five Church Charleston uh, in, in November 2015. We opened Five Church Atlanta. In June of 2016. Okay, so um, what, what were our, the lessons from yeah.
0: this, this this other restaurant?
1: Um, one is be careful who you pick as a partner, um, and two is is don't underestimate uh, how challenging being in multiple markets can be.
0: It's it, funny because you put the emphasis on the significance of having the right partners, but mm-hmm. also the significance of what happens when you choose the wrong partner. Yes, and not without you know not to you know bad talk anybody, but what was wrong with this partnership versus the other okay. ones?
1: Um, the, the partner in question, um, was not in my opinion, or actually this is proven at this point, a very honest person (laughs) and, um, and was not good at his job in my opinion. Um, and so as a byproduct of that, uh, it led to a lot of, a lot of, and we didn't know that, um, initially we, we, we thought it was issues internally in the operation. We thought it was issues with the brand. We, We didn't know where the source of the problem was coming from until a little further down the line. um, but but um, once we figured it out, we, we we fixed it very quickly.
0: Do you select partners differently because of this experience? Or are you more... 100%. And what are you doing differently now? Vetting them. And is it, what's the best way to vet somebody?
1: Background checks. Okay. And call references. Got it. And ask them questions that um, people in the position they're being hired for can answer and not BS their way through. I mean you know the restaurant business as much as I love it there is a lot of transients and so there's a lot of people especially in management positions that that you know can sit in an interview and kind of BS their way through it for 30 minutes but yeah. once you see them and work at work you're like oh you don't you know you, either you don't know what you're talking about or you know you're not working very hard or you made a lot of false promises and so um, I think being able to really dig deep and ask the right questions during the interview is what allows you to get through the BS.
0: Yeah. And I really want to dive into the scale of five church, but I'm curious, I think the first three to five years, uh, in an organization is where a a lot of personal growth happens Mm -hmm. where a lot of, uh, you got to get that first location to a point where it's humming on its own before you can even think to look in other places. Mm -hmm. So take us through that, that evolution of that first uh, restaurant specifically related to like, systems process we didn't culture. we yeah,
1: we didn't we didn't wait those three years we didn't get it humming first um <laughs> and i think that's a big part of why we faced as many challenges as we did with with nana byron's our second restaurant was that five church opened and within a year had paid back the initial wow. startup um was uh, in national press with the dnc came to charlotte and we were like the toast of the town it was a, it was a really crazy time and Everyone wanted to have us as a as a tenant. Every landlord, and so when we did Nana Byron's, um, we did not have sufficient infrastructure in place, and we had not successfully vetted the people that we were going to be putting in charge, namely um, this one person. And um, as a result, uh, it, the the concept kind of came out as muddled and didn't i mean people liked it but it didn't work the way that we thought it was going to and because of that it was like a constant drain on me on uh, the ownership group and on the management across the board because you know when it's just not and i know people listen to this and know this feeling is when you're when your restaurant's not working it's a very desperate feeling because mm. you don't know what you don't know what to do i mean you can look at stuff and hope that's going to work but it takes a long time to prove yourself right or wrong um Especially when it's sort of more macro issues, and so it was, a, it was, a, it, it was a very humbling experience.
0: You said the the infrastructure wasn't there. Infrastructure. Yeah. Get into detail. What what is that infrastructure? What what's that look like? That framing. I think
1: first is having enough people that know the business enough mm. that have that real depth of knowledge. Um, I think second is that I didn't have the depth of knowledge uh, or the patience that I have now. Um, I think that the restaurant would have been a massive hit if we just left it alone. Um, We got six months in. We were frustrated that the top line wasn't better, and so we sort of retooled the brand to try to attract more people, and then that didn't work, and so we retooled the brand again. And that's a lot to do, where you confuse your customer base. We're like, we don't know what you are.
0: That's not brand or brand. It's not anything. Yeah.
1: It's just a big mess. And so I believe firmly that The original business model, which was a traditional American concept, um, Nan and Byron are the two models for the painting, um, American Gothic, you know, the guy, the farmer with the the pitchfork and the woman, we wanted something really traditional American, classic American iconic. And, um, we ended up being basically a small version of five church in South end, uh, which was not what we wanted. Um, and so, I think the lesson learned there the most was patience, because I think if we just left alone, it would still be there. It would be doing exceptional business um, and we would have gone a totally different trajectory
0: yeah, um, you also mentioned um that like you weren 't really humming it, 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 it took time for you to get to that point to where you were humming. when did that happen
1: at five church yeah two thousand and once we once we kicked out the partner that that we were having issues with, I think once we eliminated that person, um, we started to take uh, more control over everything, and uh, it didn't take long. It what do you mean clicked. by
0: took, take control? What did taking control look like?
1: We were we were entrusting this person to make a lot of decisions on behalf of the business and, and shouldn't have. Okay. Um, and so everything menu design pricing structure i think the biggest one was just what do we want out of this what is the what is the cultural goal from this business is it to make every penny that we possibly can or is it to make a really great living while simultaneously providing a product that can inspire others and and we can feel positive about
0: got it um you open your second well technically third or mm-hmm. technically fourth for you <laughs> location uh in charleston and uh, i was really intrigued by that decision to get far away from your, your mm-hmm. first restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the choice? Why did you choose to, to do that?
1: So when I was, when I was in college, uh, I had a good friend who was dating this girl at college Charleston. Um, and uh, he actually ended up marrying her and we would go down frequently to Charleston to visit.
0: What's the distance to, to drive that? For it a was a
1: long drive like <laughs> from five-house? Chapel Hill. From Chapel. Yeah, it was probably Five or six hours. Um, but we went down pretty fr- I mean, not infrequently. I think we went maybe maybe a half dozen times. And um, her friend had a good group of friends and we had a good group of friends. And I don't know. It was just, you know, it was a time in my life where I didn't have any obligations. And Charleston is a really magical place um, for me, for lots of people. And I just had a great time. Uh, I really liked who I was when I was there. And I liked the people that I was with when I was there. And it kind of stuck with me, you know, that that, that's a, it's a fun place. It's a, it's a, it's a neat place to go. And so it's not far from Charlotte. It's like a two hour and 45 minute drive, depending on how urgently you need to get there. Okay. Um, (laughs) And how bad the traffic is, I guess. Um, So we view Charleston as a place we always wanted to go. And then five church, uh, you can't open more than one five church in a marketplace. It's, it's, it's too idiosyncratic. It's too specialized. And so, do you have
0: to find the corner of Five and Church everywhere you go? (laughs) (laughs) No, we just gave up on that.
1: Um, Actually, we're on the corner of Fourth and Church here, but uh, we didn't call it Four Church. Um, But uh, you know, we wanted to do, we wanted to stretch our bandwidth, but not so much that we couldn't handle it. And so, Charleston was was a was a very desirable place for us. Also, um, Charleston's got an amazing culinary scene, an amazing culinary scene. And so, I think we wanted to be considered. Amongst the best, um, it's a strange phenomenon. So I'm going to go off off track. No, for please. Something. It's a strange phenomenon. There is of like saying things like that. Like we wanted to be the best, and there's always some somebody out there who's like, "Hey, fuck you." You know, why do you think you're so special? And why you know it, 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 and. It's kind of the point now where there's this, there's this like sea of false modesty amongst successful business people, especially people in the restaurant business. Sea of false modesty, it's real
0: amongst. Yeah, I'm so, so this, I'm so
1: thankful and I'm so grateful. They're going through my life's motions. so amazing. Yeah. And it's just like fuck you, I dude. You're just spare me, absolutely. spare me your false modesty. You're, you know you're successful. <laughs> it's an issue. Take man. pride in your success. There's nothing wrong with that. It's
0: an issue, but I think that I think that we project false, like you're saying, modesty, totally. also false. Stability. Yeah. And you, we, there's all these brands out there getting James Beard awards left and right. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're doing amazing things. The service is amazing. The food's amazing. Everything's amazing. But there are a lot of these companies to be that amazing aren't profitable. Right. You know, but we also celebrate this in the industry. They're getting accolades and awards. Right. And everybody's going, that's what we need to do. Right. But what they're like, and I talk to these people, I know they're not profitable. A, a lot <laughs> of them, right? It's just like, why are we. Why are we you know rents repeating this like what's going on? I think a lot of that is because of the we don't control the dialogue right like media companies control the dialogue, and I know I'm a media company, but I don't see myself as one because I'm really a student first, but like they 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 just i guess what's the word um celebrate these people who are literally pulling their hair out and scraping the right, by. right. I mean, is that kind of a stretch from what the point is? No, I, I, I
1: mean, I, I think it's... So here's the balancing act, right? You don't want to come off as like some egomaniacal jerk. Yeah. Right? I'm the greatest restaurateur ever and blah, blah. You know, you don't want to come off that way. But But I don't think there's anything wrong with acknowledging your success and moreover trying to teach and share that's sort of what you're doing here share with others how you became successful but it starts with you saying that i am very successful and and it's funny i i this is a good test for you down the road is is like every restaurateur that you go to i would love to hear if they would say if they'd be willing to say i'm very successful just say those words i think we've been trained so um proactively to 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 not oh the fate's align, the stars align and all this and it's it's like you know I'm here because I worked my fucking yeah. ass off. I found really great people who also worked their asses off and who cared. Um, we've had some good luck. We've had some really terrible luck too. Um, but that's why we are where we are and I have no reservations about owning our success. I don't think I'm the greatest restaurant tour ever. I don't think we're the greatest restaurant group ever. I think we're pretty great. Yeah. Um, starting there is what allows you to, to, to grow because we're being honest about who we are. If I came in, I was like, oh, you know... I'm so lucky and everything's just falling into place for me. That's not true. Yeah. Um, and I can't be straight with the people that I'm trying to teach. If that's the
0: position I take. And I think it's also important to compound on what you're saying is that success and greatness is relative to mm-hmm. the beholder, sure. whatever mm-hmm. that group or that person is trying to become. And I think that when the media controls dialogue and says, mm-hmm. this is success, then it kind of everyone is like, well, if I'm not that, then I'm not successful. But the right. truth is, what the hell do you want? What's important to you? What are your values? What do you need to be happy that success. Yep. And I think that that needs to be communicated because we're just really just, it's kind of twisted what's happening in our industry. Right well, I mean, if,
1: if when, when <laughs> this is a great conversation,
0: um, Thank you. when I'm loving it too, but when,
1: when you go on Yelp and TripAdvisor and open table and all these different review sites, um, you know, you're allowing others to control the dialogue. Uh, I think the overall metric is like 3% of your total customer base actually goes online, and writes a review. um, you know you have food writers uh, in the newspaper where you've got one or two people you've got an Eater where you've got a couple people there's such a narrow field of people that are contributing to the sort of noise the that exists is. out there yeah. about a business yeah. um, and I'm saying it from a media standpoint um, from, a, from a I can go on Google and search standpoint that's absurd yeah. that's not how this works um, there are 350 people in my company uh, of which my guests interact with one or two to make an assumption about the entirety of an experience or the kind of brand you are based on such a limited scope or by reading something online, I think is is a false narrative. It's terribly um, uh, shallow in terms of its representation. And so, uh, you know, again, I think it starts with people being straight with each other, about where they're at Um, I would not trade positions with any restaurants around the country I am extraordinarily happy with my group I think we're incredibly uh, lucky but I think we've worked incredibly hard and we've capitalized on that good fortune Um, start there We'll yeah. start there and let every restaurateur do that, and I think you're going to have a lot more honest dialogues out there.
0: I'm i really enjoying the, this rabbit hole. We went into. Uh, <laughs> but I want to bring it back to the sure, sure. I think there's a ton of value there. Thank you. Um, so one thing, and I, and I think uh, we can reference Danny Meyer, your mm-hmm. your I want to call him your digital mentor, but your book mentor, sure. right? Um, he he references the significance of opening lots of locations within walking distance from mm-hmm. each other because early on you need to have that presence. Right. Um, did did opening a restaurant two and a half hours away was that a challenge yeah oh yeah what were the challenges associated with that
1: i mean i think the, big, the biggest challenge was not the distance but rather the 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 personality of the city itself um for those that don't know charleston charleston's an amazing town but it's very very protective of its novelty of its of its unique nature and so i mean corporate restaurants don't go to charleston Ruth Chris opened on Market Street and got completely laughed out of town. They were there for like three years, went broke, left, or something. I don't know the whole story. But, um, you know, it's just not a city where you see big brand names that you see elsewhere. There's not a cheesecake factory downtown in Charleston. Um, There's virtually no fast food downtown, at least not towards the southern tip of the peninsula. Um, It's a really, really specific um, marketplace. And so when we came rolling to town tooting our horn over the five church guys were from charlotte they were like fuck you who are you guys um and there was some real pushback uh when we first opened we opened on market street which is a very touristy area um and in spite of the fact that the store was beautiful and i think we were selling great food we we got some real resistance from the community not much more so than we anticipated and it took a really long time to to convince people that we were serious.
0: When you say the community, are you talking more the locals, the rest, the consumer, or the community of, of other restaurant tours?
1: Well, the consumers, when they're tourists, the consumers are 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 driven by the, the the hospitality community in a in a certain place. So your your concierge or your maitre d' or your server at one restaurant tells you to go to another one or a bartender. Yeah. Um, I think within the hospitality community, we were we were not supported. Um I think part of that was my fault for basically saying I don't give a shit if the city supports us or not <laughs> or we, we did something special here and they're going to have to like us. Um and that was definitely not the
0: case. Was your mentality us versus you? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Is do you stand by that mentality today? Yes. Okay.
1: Totally. Um I don't think that I don't we're not a corporate group. I mean, I live in Charleston. I moved there to run this restaurant. Um, I love Charleston. Uh, and moreover, I, you know, my story, like we said earlier, goes back to when I was in college and how much I liked it there. So I wasn't an outsider yeah. the way that they were trying to paint us. In fact, the the food critic uh, talked about uh, NASCAR and Charlotte and really made a point that we were, you know, we were this, you know, semi small corporate group. And, uh, you know, that was uh, a very, surface level and I think unfair categorization for us. So it took a while to um, make it clear to both the hospitality community and also the, the the residents of Charleston as a whole that we were serious about um, doing something special there uh, and that we were willing to wait for them to come find us.
0: Got it. Um, so – I mean, there's so many different directions we could go in right now. Um this we're going back. We're we're five years out or six years out at this point. There was two thousand fifteen that you guys opened in, in Charleston. Uh, Sophia's Lounge was two thousand seventeen, Tempest mm-hmm. uh Charleston was two thousand twenty, and then you have uh Labelle's I'm not sure if I'm saying this correctly. Hel- Helen? Helene. Helene, yeah, thank you very Helene. much. Yeah. Um which is tw- 2021 your most recent restaurant. I mean Well, this
1: the one we're sitting in right now is. The most <laughs> oh, sorry, right. Correct. Sorry. <laughs> Churching
0: you. Um thank you. Um so take us through the 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 growing pains, sure. right? So we talked a lot about um what it's like to be a, a single to two unit operator, uh but also you're you're scaling across now three cities, mm-hmm. which makes it even more challenging. Like what are the challenges that you've been faced with over the past, uh, since 2012, almost 10 years, uh, specifically around scaling and growing and growing the people around you. Mm -hmm. I I
1: think it's, it's looking at a person that's a server today and seeing what they're going to be five years from now and trying to help guide them to that result. Uh, if that's what they want, um, uh, you know, uh, something that I really resented when I was bartending or I was serving, or even when I was a manager before I had been successful was that, you know, people, people are selfish and they don't think about others a whole lot. And that's in business too. And so they look at you and they say, oh, you're a bartender. That means you're a bartender today. You were a bartender yesterday. You'll be a bartender forever because that's all you are to me. Uh, and I think bosses do that too. Um, what I learned was if you want to have a great team, then the best bet is to develop people from the early stages. If they're a hostess, you develop them into a maitre D and maybe more. If they're a server, you develop them into a bartender or a bar manager and so on. And so what's, what's happened is I think post COVID it was happening during COVID, but especially post COVID. A lot of those people um, that I had started working on, um, you know, four or five years ago really started to mature into, into successful managers um, successful leaders is probably a better way of putting it. And so as a result, my, my ability to do more, to, to, to delegate and to, um, sort of be in 10 places at once became a lot more real because they were, they were able to, um, affect change when it was needed and be able to manage, um, without me being there.
0: Okay. So how did you? What was the process of building? Like I guess one way I like to look at this is layers, right? Mm -hmm. Like you start with opening a restaurant. A lot of times you're the person in the business doing all the stuff. Then you build people around you. You put a layer. It's like shark teeth. Yeah. So like, like what? How many layers are you at? I guess from going. I don't know where we are today. Like what layers are between you and the work? How have you framed the business? How have you built? About four. It's about
1: four at this point. There's 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 me and then there's a round of of let's say partners and executives in the company executive sounds a little much. That's not, that's not an accurate description, but, um, and then there's the store managers themselves and there's the service managers or chefs or whatever that are actually the ones that are like on the floor every day dealing with people. So there's there's about four rows of people.
0: So when you're building and you're expanding, you got to build I like to say like two things determine growth, right? And feel free to disagree with me. I don't have all the answers. People and cash flow. So it's when people start bursting at the seams at one location mm-hmm. and you say I don't have any room for growth for you, we need to open another location to give you opportunity what do you want to do like what's your plan and then you just create opportunities for people and that's what kind of determines growth i guess where i'm going with this is how are you looking do you agree with that statement is that what your approach is totally so what's that process of selecting and uh how are you retaining are you offering equity in the Mm -hmm. business to these partners like what's that how do you find these people how do you attract these people how do you how do you do that right
1: it starts with with do i want to be partners with this person or not and and it doesn't matter if do I want to be partners with them five years from now because they're a server today or does it or, or do I want to be partners with them right now. If I believe that there's somebody that ultimately I could be partners with, then my job, as far as I'm concerned, is to, to be supportive and to train them and to allocate resources to whoever that person is to allow them to continue to grow, especially if they know what they want. Um, I think a challenge for a lot of people in the restaurant business, especially when they're in it early, is, is they don't know what they want yet. There's a lot of young people. Like I said, there's a lot of transience, um, and so if you're, you know, if you're 24, 25 years old, and you're, let's say, you're behind the bar of a place like Five Church, you don't know what you want necessarily. Um, you might be open to a career in the hospitality business. You might be, you know, in school for uh, real estate. You might be whatever, and so um, filtering through a lot of that sort of statistical noise to find the people that want what they're doing, that are good at what they're doing, and that you want to be partners with long-term is the first step. That's to sort of find them. Um, and then you make promises to them and you deliver on them.
0: So finding them, are you, are you looking for them outside of your organization or, no. or are you probing within your organization? Within. Yeah. So what's that, that, that process of probing and discovering what people want look like? How do you do that?
1: I think watching them work is a great way to start. The nice thing about the restaurant business is it's not like I have to ask you, hey, fill out this report, and I read it and I analyze your performance. This is like I get to walk in, and whether they're you know a busboy or even a, a, the general manager, you're able to see them perform uh, in real time, and it's like poker. I mean, you can if you're good at it, you can read what people have without seeing their cards. I think uh, you know I've always been pretty good at, at identifying. Um, talent in people um, how they carry themselves how they move around the room how they make eye contact Um, and that's the start so it's sort of like the that's like the first filter actually the first filter is whether or not they're willing to take the initiative to say that they want um, something more Um, and then after that is like finding people and filtering and then each round of of growth for them comes with sort of a, a cliff or a threshold where they get they get pushed to the limit of what they want. You know, Do you really want to be a manager? Yeah. Do you really want to be a general manager? Yeah. Do you really want to be a partner? And, and sort of each step comes with its own incentives and its own sort of liabilities and, and seeing how they deal with that is what, what kind of gives away to me what I, what I want from them.
0: So when you get to that partner level, that partner layer, how do you find the balance between what's your vision for what you want and what's our vision for what we want?
1: By the time they're ready to be partners with us, I think we all have a similar vision. It requires a buy-in as an as an employee and as a leader in our company, um, so that by the time they're ready to be partners with us, I you know I'm it's it's a it's a it's a it's a no brainer for me. In fact, oh my, uh, i think you, we have seven, eight, nine. I think we have like seven or eight. Um, employees that started as employees that are now equitable partners with us.
0: And I mean, as far as like a vision or concept, are you, are you saying pitch your vision to me or are you pitching visions to them? Both. Okay. Both.
1: Uh, in fact, actually <laughs> um, uh, my, my VP of operations and my um, director of culinary uh, something or I don't know what his title is, but Adam Hodgins and Madison white uh, were given the assignment of drafting a business model with some of the other um, smaller scale equity partners that we have. And said, pitch me a business model, um, and uh, I can put together the funding and support it if it's a good business model. Get passionate about it. It doesn't have to just be like, you know, uh, the Fifth Street Group, like, you know, Jamie L. Hunter and myself's vision. Um, it can be their vision, too, uh, provided that they are able to prove that it's a viable business. So, And then vice versa is, you know, oh, I want to open a church and union in Denver, which, which is what we're working on right now. Um, will you guys come out here and give me feedback and tell me what you think and you know, give me 10 negatives and 10 positives and all that good stuff. And so it, it kind of goes both ways because each direction the information goes is a meeting of the minds. It's an ability for people to find common ground and find the things that we agree on or to vet out areas where we don't agree um, and start to try to deal with that. Uh, in advance of something seriously being wrong down the road.
0: Yeah. Um, so I am curious because you, you mentioned earlier that uh, what a big part of your original success was the fact that you had the roots. Now you're, you're talking about going to Denver, right? Do mm-hmm. you have a roots there, or do you are no. you investing in people? So what's the new challenge of like, for example, your newest location where we're sitting today in Nashville? Uh, I've heard that. Nashville is very receptive of new people coming in. Mm-hmm. Whereas Charleston was like, fuck you. Mm-hmm. Was that the same when you came to Nashville?
1: Uh, no one has said, fuck you to me. yet. <laughs> okay, no, I mean, maybe they have, I haven't heard them say it. Um, <laughs> is that true
0: about the culture of Nashville? I think, that?
1: yeah, Nashville, Nashville's is excited for its growth. Yeah. Nashville is like, you know, the, the, the gates are open. They want, um, people to come here yeah. and to put roots down and to spend money here. Um, Whereas, and that's probably to do with the just the real estate. I mean, there's Nashville's a big, sprawling city. Um, there's lots of neighborhoods that surround the downtown area. Um, and so there's space to grow. Whereas Charleston, I mean, it's a very, very small... I mean, there's like three streets in Charleston. It's like King Street, Meeting Street, Market, and Newspay, that's four. But yeah. um, it's a small city uh, with not a lot of available commercial real estate. And so people are... There's just not as much... Inventory and so people are more productive of what goes in here. Whereas here, there's lots of inventory. And so, if they find out that you know they're getting a yard house, let's use yard house as an example, which I don't think much of as a brand, but they do exceedingly well. Um, lots of people will be over the moon that a yard house is coming to Nashville uh, because there is available space and because they're not taking someone else's place, but rather just developing a new neighborhood or whatever. Um, it's when it's when restaurants start taking spaces of places that people really liked where you get resentment.
0: Yeah. But I think what's interesting about Nashville is that it's filled with transplants. Mm-hmm. So for the, I would argue probably at least half, if not the majority of people that are in Nashville are probably not from Nashville. Mm-hmm. So there's probably not as much of a, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, history or I guess cultural identity. Yeah. You know, so like, I mean, am I, am I, Do you disagree or agree with that? Saying? Yeah, that's probably really right.
1: Mean, I mean, Nashville reminds me a lot of Charlotte. Yeah, um, with with music.
0: I mean, you could say the same thing about Denver. There's a lot of implants there. Mm-hmm. Right yeah, there too. Most cities uh, are like that. Nostalgia is the word. I was yeah. yeah, most for cities are like value that. So, like brands.
1: Um, I would compare Charleston to a place like Asheville, North Carolina, um, where it has a really clear cultural identity for the city and for the for the downtown area etc and so um it, and it's not very flexible and so when you go down there and you say hey, you know, we're here and we're going to do this new thing and you're going to like it whether you like it or not, I think there's obviously some reluctance to to get yeah. on board that. Where is a huge city where you get offerings of all kinds, you know, they're like whatever. We'll, we'll 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 take whatever you're willing to bring us.
0: Yeah. Um so one thing that I really want to start talking more about on the show and I'm really going to try to be much more intentional about this is talking I mean the future the the statement the mission statement of Restaurant Unstoppable is to inspire and empower and transform the industry. And I, I'm, I've been thinking a lot about that transformation element of the mission statement. And what does transformation look like? What needs the change in our industry? And how can we share knowledge and perspective to make that change happen? Because I think now is a really important time to, I mean, we're coming back. I mean, we're kind of coming out of that window of stillness. But at the same time, I think we really need to be much more intentional with how we go into the future. Um, and you earlier said, and I made a note to come back to this, uh, The new cookie is the economic stability. Mm -hmm. So if we're we're marching into the future where this industry, food and beverage, is going to be much more transactional, much more digital, much more you never see the end result of the experience that you created for somebody, Mm -hmm. get into more about the the cookie being the economic stability and what the future of this industry looks like.
1: I mean, it starts with, with viewing the restaurant business and hospitality as a whole as being a viable career. I think that's really where we where we have lost as an industry to a lot of other industries is that the entry-level pay is terrible um, the treatment at a lot of piece, places is, is terrible there's virtually no upward mobility um, and there's a lot of um, self-destructive tendencies that are a byproduct of lack of upward mobility and pay which is alcoholism drug abuse etc and so um, I, I talk about this all the time with my staff where like you know let's say somebody calls out from a shift and they're like oh I can't come in today uh, um, whatever and they give some ridiculous excuse and, and, I, and I say to my managers you know if this person was working at Bank of America and they tried to say they couldn't come in because you know whatever their excuse was would Bank of America tolerate that and of course the answer is almost almost always no they wouldn't tolerate it. I'm like well then why are we tolerating this. Now, obviously we're a restaurant, we're not a bank. And so our, our threshold for tolerance is a little different, but, but I think the point still stands, which is that, you know, this is a real career. I mean, I started washing dishes when I was 16 years old, working at South Park Mall at at Atlanta Bread Company. Maybe I was 15, I don't know. Um, And, and it started in a very modest way. And I've I've done exceedingly well for myself. And most of that's because I've worked really, really hard and had a vision of where I wanted to go um, in this business. That's hard to do when you're filtered out of the business within the first five years that you're in it because it's miserable and you can't grow.
0: So what needs to change to create that upward mobility? Access to to
1: equity, access to cash,
0: so what needs to change for gotta, the industry to have access to cash?
1: Think about, like, think about it like Moneyball, right? Moneyball, the logic in the book or the, the, of, of that thesis was that the more people that you have on base, the higher your likelihood of scoring runs. Instead of getting people on base, think of it like the longer you keep them in the industry, the higher the likelihood that they'll end up staying in the industry. If you've got a server who comes in and they're, they're a senior year of college and they, and, they, and they work for two, three years, they really like it, they've got a lot of natural skill, they don't know exactly where they're trying to go. If you, if you provide them with an environment where they can see a clear line of success from where they are to where they want to go, they won't leave.
0: Yeah. And I think it's really important, too, when you see somebody who does have what it takes, mm-hmm. who does have a natural inclination to this industry, you've got to let them know. Because sometimes, totally. like, I th- so many times in this show when I've asked a question, like, when did you know mm-hmm. that this was your path? It almost, like, 90% of the time goes back to somebody told me I was good at this. Right. And I think we all need to be seen and recognized. The same reason why, for a lot of us, it's about the consumer being, you know, having that, grat- being gratified. Like, mm-hmm. when you do the thing for them and you see that gratification. Uh, like, it's the same thing for the, the, your employee. Like when you're like, wow, like you're good at this. Like I'm so pleased with your performance. I'm so impressed by your ability. That shit lights people mm-hmm. up. And that's what makes people fall in love with their work is when they are valued and seen. Yes. And I don't think we do enough of that. What are your thoughts as I'm sharing this? I
1: mean, I, I agree. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I think we do a great job in, in my company doing that because we've made that a priority. Yeah. Um, but I think in the industry as a whole it's terrible it's terrible we're, we're awful at it um, and that's why people leave
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, the same scenario that I just described with that employee who graduated from college and it's not, imagine that same employee is excited about working at a restaurant and is inspired and ready to go and then the boss comes and just like takes their day out of them something that had nothing to do with them Just just destroys them after a really long shift of getting destroyed by a bunch of rude customers and all this stuff they don't make a ton of money and, and you know, the fate's aligned in a way that's really, really negative. And I think we've all had that shift, if not many shifts like that. What's the threshold for tolerance? Sooner or later you're going to be like, you know what? This is fucking ridiculous. What am I doing here? I'm, I'm done with this. I'm a, I, You know, I graduated from college. Why am I working in this place? And you leave. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter if the if the manager found out that, you know their dog had been run over by a car, and it doesn't matter that the customers that came in that day, you know, were celebrating a divorce and got drunk and took out their hate of their ex husband on you. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It, what matters is how you feel. And if you had been in an environment where you were receiving consistent positive support from the people that you worked for, you'll be able to tolerate a shift like that. Yeah. You're going. You know what? Ugh, fuck. It's a cost of doing business. Mm-hmm. There is not a career that I've heard of where you don't have a day that's tough.
0: You got to increase the pros to balance the cons. Totally. Right? And I mean, back to this idea of equity. Equi- oh, wow, I can't talk right now. Equi- to, equi- Jesus, equitable. Equitable? Say it for me. Thank you very much. Equitable. Thank you. Wow. That was painful. Mm-hmm. Uh, this idea of equitable, I, I guess, uh, equality, right? What needs to happen in our industry to achieve equitable equality? Um, the first thing, 100%.
1: Is recognizing there's an enormous pay gap between the front of the house and the back of the house. So what has to change to, to fix that? You got the back house has to make more money. How where are we going to get the money? Well, we I mean we do tip the kitchen. Um, we developed a system called Tip the Kitchen. Um, there are other restaurants that do it, but we kind of modeled a very specific approach, which is to in, encourage our customers to tip if there's a worthy experience, and then matching those tips uh, up to five hundred dollars a day per store, and that alone has made a monumental difference in our company. That has been the game changer um, in our company because it's, it's, it's put an awful lot more money in the pockets of people that really needed it. Yeah, And as a byproduct of that, it's kept more people on our payroll for longer and thusly makes it a viable industry to potentially have a career in. Um, that's That's, I mean, right now, The scenario I just described of that senior in high school or college who has a tough shift or whatever, that shift is happening very, very frequently right now. There's a, I mean, this isn't news to anybody. There's a staffing crisis across the board in all industries, but especially in the restaurant business. And people are short staffed and customers are dealing with their post COVID trauma and just taking it out on staff left and right. Um, There are a lot of excuses to walk away from our industry right now. Yeah. Um, Especially if you're not
0: making money. Do you think the staffing issue is going to change? Yeah. Do you think it's going to recover totally um yeah. is there anything you're doing to evolve your concepts to be able to go forward if the staffing issue is continues to we, get worse? we don't have a staffing issue
1: yeah i mean that's not fair we we have a staffing issue in so much as that like we would like to always be able to find good people yeah and, maybe, and better people, people. right yeah. exactly better people sounds terrible but but better at what they're what they're hired to do i guess is a good way of saying it yeah. um and so because of tip the kitchen Our kitchens are staffed and almost fully staffed all the time. Whereas I think ninety five percent of restaurants that exist right now cannot say that. Mm -hmm. As a result, the food comes out faster. As a result, the relationship between the front house and the back house is better because the back house is excited that the servers are earning them tips. Yeah. Um, And so your culture is better, and that all it all it's like a vicious cycle, except in reverse, where everything is feeding in a positive way. And so uh, you know, I think the solution to the staffing crisis. Is two parts. One is to um, ensure an environment where people can be treated fairly. And I mean that economically. I also mean that emotionally and psychologically. And also one where they can see a real viable pathway to growth if that's what they want. Um, If you don't see it going anywhere, then what the fuck are you doing here? You could get hired in any industry right now for more pay than you could ever have been paid before. Why are you staying in this industry? Um, If not because it's viable.
0: Mm. Any other things when reflecting on what the state of the industry is, what needs to change about our industry, anything else that you want to bring to the conversation as far as what we should create awareness about? If yeah. enough people knew about this, then we could make change. I
1: mean, we mentioned it earlier, and I think this is a really important point, is what you read about a restaurant on a review site is total BS. Yeah, It's 3% max of your total customer base. Since we opened 5 Church Charlotte, I think we have like 800 reviews on Yelp. We've had over a million customers. Why, and, but but yelp pays to have their seo promoted so if you google five church and i've said this before but if you google five church the number two or three item is yelp yeah in spite of the fact that it's so disproportionately representative of what people are saying about us that is a total nonsense and it empowers the worst kind of behavior if i have a great experience at a restaurant i don't go running to my computer i go talking to my i go to my friends yeah hey you got to go try out lewis's barbecue in charleston which yeah. by the way if you're ever there you should go there It's awesome,
0: Um,
1: (laughs) like that. That's what you should be doing. But if you go and read online, it's just it's it's like this 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 nonstop barrage of petty grievances that nobody really reads
0: except for the the restaurants. Um, That that is it's it's so demoralizing. Well, what's interesting is the restaurant industry is not leading is not leading the change. It's it's there's this there's this industry between the consumer and the restaurant it's all these tech companies that are trying to we're not the beneficiary of all the things that are happening right in so we react to it things right. are happening other industries tech industries are influencing our industry mm-hmm. trying to make things more convenient for the consumer but what at what cost
1: mm-hmm.
0: are we get, like for convenience what are we giving up well it goes two you ways
1: know. right it goes yeah. two ways because we have to put up with the bullshit right of other people making money off of what we do but it also means that that we're not replaceable yeah you can't like blue apron okay whatever but you can't you can't replicate the experience of going out to a full service restaurant having dinner yeah whereas you can replicate the experience of going to a mall with amazon yeah right i can go online and i can buy an iphone right now and not have to go into a store in waiting in line you cannot replicate that with restaurants, and so I think it's sort of a double-edged sword, which is that you have to tolerate the fact that Uber Eats and Postmates and all these guys, and then Open Table and Yelp, are sort of parasitic um, businesses. Oh, Open Table is more functional, but 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 are parasitic businesses that live off of the discussions about restaurants uh, or about the products sold by restaurants. But it's because you can't replace us Mm. Um, you might be able to replace an individual restaurant but there will always be a desire to go out to eat
0: one of the things that drives me is bringing the industry together uniting the industry and opening up a dialogue where we're all Mm -hmm. on the same page because I think if we're on the same page then we can start to band together and be like if we all choose to to give a giant middle finger to whoever is trying to control the narrative Mm -hmm. then we if we're collective we stick together can really determine the success of anybody because they need us to be a part of it Right, sure. they need us to to buy into whatever is going on. So if we just say no, screw off, right? Like, then I think that like, people need our participation to to have their business be successful. Well,
1: it's funny because you know if you so I, I got uh, I, I did this Twitter feed recently where um, the Charlotte Observer actually picked it up and, and ran the story, and he was talking about the comparison to of local restaurants versus corporate restaurants and and why charlotte's culinary scene has struggled at times because of the this dominance of of corporate restaurants and the lack of of privately owned restaurants and that's not really the point the point is when i ran the story i got an enormous amount of negative feedback i mean people were like fuck you because i basically called out customers i called out our guests good and and it's funny to see how much people can't deal with getting called out now as a restaurant owner, I read negative things about what I do and what I care about when I spend my entire life doing every single day. And I read really hateful, petty, insane shit all the time. If you point at somebody who's being unreasonable and say, hey, you're being unreasonable, they lose their mind. They can't deal with it. And to me, that's the root of We've, a lot of poison in our industry is that, that the pendulum has swung too far <laughs> towards the customer's always We've right. We've conditioned
0: the customer. We've made it okay for we them. We made it this okay. Um, yeah, it's our fault.
1: Now, I've gotten into a couple... <laughs> I probably shouldn't talk about this, but I've gotten a couple incidents with guests where I'm like ear muffs. I'm like, y- y- you can't, <laughs> you can't do that. Yeah. Like, no, I don't want your business. I don't want your money. If you're going to be disrespectful to my customer, to my, to my staff, or to to my to my team, or to my store, um, just get the fuck out. Yeah. Like, what
0: are you doing here? But I think it's important because like we have created this dialogue that says we the consumer is always right, and like hospitality is about generosity. It's about giving, 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 giving. And yes. But we've gotten to a point where the consumer is treating every restaurant like it's a multi-billion dollar mm-hmm. corporation that has the ability to absorb dishonesty and mm-hmm. greed. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what it is. But the small consumer, the small business owner can't absorb that.
1: And they're the ones who, who are punished the most by it. I mean, like, you know, Darden Food Group could give a shit about your one star review on Yelp. Of capital grill they don 't care, I mean they, they probably have some infrastructure that evaluates it,, yeah. but it 's not going to affect them, okay their yeah. stock price isn 't going down because you gave their fillet a one star review, whereas the new place on the corner that so desperately needs positive feedback, if you go in with the same petty attitude that 's going to hurt them that one star review because they only have three versus you know thousands yeah um, I, 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 that, <laughs> I to me we, to me, the accountability does not stop with the restaurant ownership and management, and I think that they have a lot to do with it. I think that there 's a lot. Of, frankly blood on their hands but i think the customers are a huge huge part of the problem and nobody wants to talk about it because they, the they pay the bills yeah exactly right but
0: i think that's what we need to transition from being a reactive industry to a proactive industry totally. and saying listen there's a lot broken with the food system and if we're going to make changes like you need to understand what the problems are because mm-hmm. your dollars are going to directly influence the future but doesn't
1: like, that start with with the perception that our industry is viable and it's going back to what I was saying before is that if people don't perceive the restaurant industry as a viable industry, which most people do not, frankly, oh it's really hard and you know, ninety percent of restaurants fail in the first year and all this like bad data that's just sort of like floating around all the time about what we do, and oh, you're all drug addicts and alcoholics and this. When you can eliminate that can you when you can do what Danny Meyer did, yeah. And eliminate all that and be like, No, we're serious businesses that do Remarkable revenue that that feed thousands, if not millions of people, and needs to be taken seriously. I think when you can do that the noise the bs starts to fade and you focus in on the on the product and the process yes
0: Patrick i 'm loving the conversation. I could keep on going with you <laughs> I got to respect your time and I have to ask you uh, we talked about what needs to transform transform in the restaurant industry, but again mission to inspire, empower and transform the industry. How have you personally transformed because I think if we 're going to transform the industry, we need to transform one person at a time. Mm-hmm. So how have you evolved over time?
1: I think success has an amazing way to humble you. Um, I think when you're successful, um, when you've had a taste of success, um, you realize that your success is a byproduct of so many people working hard, buying into your vision, coming in at two o'clock in the morning to do inventory or whatever, um, and that you can't do anything on that level by yourself. And so when you have success, it, 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 there's two ways you can go with it. You can get a big ego and think that you're hot shit and all, you know, or you can, which is some people, or you can have the reality check that your success is a real responsibility. Um, and that you made promises to people, not just the people that count on you financially to open the business and to run it profitably, but rather the people that work for you and then the people that come into your store. Uh, it's very, very humbling. When I say a million people have come into Five Church Charlotte, that's a very humbling number. Yeah. Um, and so, having perspective and being um, being aware of how unusual the circumstances are, um, and being grateful for it allows is a big change. Not change, but it's what I've
0: learned the most about this business. Beautiful, Patrick. I've loved this conversation. One more quick break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back to bust out a true speed round. You know Restaurant Unstoppable's mission because I'm constantly echoing it. It's to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. And I could not be more excited to be partnering with Diageo Bar Academy because they have the same goals. And I am just filled With hope right now because never before has there been such an abundance of information and resources and it's because things like Diageo Bar Academy exist. Diageo Bar Academy equips bartenders, servers, managers, and hospitality professionals with the insights, stories, and tools to be better. They're constantly raising the bar on industry standards. No matter your background or your skill level, there is knowledge and new techniques for you waiting over at Diageo Bar Academy that will improve your personal and professional lives. For example, they just launched a new masterclass, Tips for Profitable Menus. With expert tips and step-by-step guidance, their experts give you all the advice you need to craft exciting and profitable menus. With this masterclass, you'll learn how to create eye-catching menu design, how to promote your most profitable drinks, how to understand poor costs and pricing accordingly, and you'll discover how to create well-designed menus that will attract new customers, exceed your regulars expectations and maximize upselling and revenue. And it goes far beyond master classes like this. You can also join live events and watch all past master classes on demand at www.diagiobaracademy.com. Whether you're a bartender, owner, operator, or if you're just completely new to the industry, diagiobaracademy.com has easy to access resources to help you learn new skills and stay in the loop with all the latest industry trends. Diageo Bar Academy is a free online resource for hospitality professionals of all skill levels. Stay informed, inspired, and connected to grow your career or your business by joining Diageo Bar Academy today. Why wait? Visit www.diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. You're already using like toast to make smart operating decisions and turn labor management into a competitive advantage for your business. Restaurant unstoppable members get three months. Absolutely free. Get started at www7 slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S. Dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. All right, so we're back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Uh, I'm a very
1: good public speaker.
0: Eh, just kidding. Yeah, this has been great. Well, this isn't public. <laughs> this is a podcast. But yeah. I, I, think I'm good
1: at, I think I'm good at speaking in public. I would back that up. Uh,
0: what is w- one of your biggest weaknesses? Uh, I'm impatient. What is one question you ask or thing you look for when you're growing your team when you're interviewing people? What do you want to do? What's the answer you're looking for? Uh, I want to own my own restaurant. What's the biggest challenge you're dealing with today? Um, unreasonable people. How are you dealing with that challenge? <laughs> right,
1: <laughs> right now, I'm screaming in their faces. Now, uh, I'm trying to be patient.
0: Just offer perspective too. Yeah, right? trying to be trying to be
1: trying to respond to unreasonable people with reasonable responses.
0: Where is this unreasonable? Where are these people coming from? It's just, like, it's just yeah. everywhere. Uh, what is one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team? This is a core value, a way to be. Sure. Um, say what you mean and do what you say. What is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? So something that's common sure. within the four walls of your restaurants, but not common throughout the industry. Um, we're highly unscripted at tables. We're very
1: Our, our staff and our, our guests are very creative.
0: That was the one thing that killed me when I tried to be a server is mm-hmm. that I went to a, a, a restaurant group that was very scripted yeah. and I have the hor- the most horrible memory. I just can't. Like, I get so worried about how I'm going to say things that it's not exactly right. It's not right.
1: the opposite of what we're trying to do. Yeah. Like it, isn't the purpose to have a personal interaction with somebody in a way that's at least somewhat reasonable, and how can I have that if somebody's just vomiting some pre-programmed shit? Yeah, that they, you know, I'm going to talk to your table, and I'm going to go to the table one foot away and say the exact yeah. same script. It's like, it's
0: it's so, as so it's much for serious experience. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, what is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant owner? You can't say Danny Meyer saying the table.
1: Hmm. I mean, say the table is a great book. Um,
0: yes. uh, that's a good question. Uh, the Art of War. Beautiful. What was the biggest <laughs> lesson from that book?
1: Um, to expand your territory, you need to dis- to divide the spoils.
0: What is one thing you feel restaurant tours don't do well enough or often enough?
1: Um, share information with their employees. Yes, specifically, what information? Uh, financial and the de- just any kind of decision making. App like why are we doing this? You're not. You're not doing something because I told you to, you're doing it because it's makes I mean, you're doing it because to- I told you also, but you're doing it because it makes sense and here's the reasons why.
0: These next two questions, the point of these questions is to help good people connect with good people. So what is one service you've hired or outsourced? Not a technology, but something that a group of people do better than you could ever do yourself or in-house.
1: Um, we have a group out of um, Nashville uh, our architectural design services, uh, the Bradley projects, and they're excellent. Um, and I've been through a lot of architects and a lot of contractors over the years, and these guys are cut above and have been amazing to work with and provide real insight that I, I just don't, not only do I not have, but I couldn't have.
0: I love it. And what is one technology that you've recently adopted and implement, in, implemented in your business that's had a huge impact on communication, efficiency, profitability, anything along those lines?
1: Technology, I mean, tip the kitchen, but that's not really technology. Uh, I mean, we just adapted. We just brought in Avero Slingshot, which I think
0: is a really interesting tool. Well, um, correct me if I'm wrong. Averro was with compete or mm-hmm. absorbed compete C28, which is now Restaurant 365. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, and what's the biggest impact that's had on your business?
1: You're able to review your you're able to review your perf- your performance in a lot of different ways, rather than just saying, okay, our most popular dish is the fried chicken or is the filet mignon. Now you're able to say, well, our most popular dish when it's raining. Yeah. Or um, Joe's most popular, uh, Joe the server, is uh, is has a preponderance for selling sea bass yeah. or something.
0: So I'm really curious, and this is something that's come up recently, that maybe a year ago I would have said, if you're opening a restaurant, don't, you know, keep your maybe go with like QuickBooks or something like that. Mm -hmm. But now I'm starting to wonder if it's better. If you look, if your hope is to scale, if your hope is to grow, is it worth investing budgeting for technology like restaurant 365 from day one? What's your perspective on that?
1: We don't even look at our financials at our businesses for the first six months of operations. We don't even look.
0: What's the reason for that?
1: Because it's uh, you can't. It's it's confusing and it's it's you don't know where your priorities need to be. The priority. Okay, someone comes into your restaurant. The number one thing that they want is to feel good. Mm-hmm. They don't give a fuck about what they're going to spend. They don't. They, they don't. I mean, they care, but they don't care. Especially yeah. places like like Five Church or Church and Union. And so, the first step is to make sure that you are providing to your customers what they want.
0: Yeah, you're still in MVP mode, minimal viable product. Mm-hmm. You're, you're totally. You're, You're looking for feedback, you're pivoting, you're adapting. You don't know what you are yet, so Mm -hmm. what's the point of tracking?
1: So the first three years of your ops, let's say the first two years of your operations, like you don't don't even know why you're profiting if you are profiting. Um, You don't know what you're doing well or what you're not doing. I mean, you might know some things, but you don't have a mastery of it like we were discussing before. And so until you have a mastery of it, hire an accountant that's good. Mm. Hire somebody who's got all that software. Um, and that can relay to you the numbers in a way where you can rely on them to make decisions about your operations but don't make a whole lot of decisions in your operations based on financials the first couple years you're open
0: got it this is the last question if you can
1: I mean some people are (laughs) sometimes you're undercapitalized so you don't sincerely you don't have a choice in fact this is the number one reason why restaurants fail is like you don't have money and so you need to get that information. Yeah. But as much as you can, try to make decisions based on what you believe is going to make your guests happier rather than make you more money.
0: We just did a whole workshop with Stephanie Robson on that subject mm-hmm. of uh, building um, basically like a runway. Like your um, what's the, the – I can't remember the, the exact – term she used to, to, to identify the workshop but the idea of just really getting realistic with how much money it's going to take to be open and how long of a runway you're going to need to mm-hmm. get to the point where you're profitable mm-hmm. and like t- looking at every detail every expense uh, it's super important
1: i mean five Trees charleston took three years to turn a profit and now it's like a jugger now it's doing numbers
0: that are comparable to like manhattan and vegas yeah, yeah. okay this is the last question it's a doozy oh, So boy. listen closely and be ready you got the news. You'd be leaving this world tomorrow. Mm-hmm. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be gone with your departure. With the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good of humanity, for your legacy, to pay it forward to the next generation. What would those three pieces of wisdom be?
1: Um, be empathetic.
0: One. Be reasonable. Two. And work hard. Three. Patrick, I've loved this conversation. Man, you're great. Uh we wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. This is really how I'm trying to pivot the podcast to be the most trusted resource out there. Who do you respect and admire and believe would be a great guest mentor like you made for us today? Sure.
1: Um I don't know him personally, but I've read a bit about him and I've been to his restaurants many times. John Lewis. I just mentioned Lewis's barbecue earlier. Um I think what I've been to that restaurant. I don't even want to admit how many times. <laughs> probably 50 times and I have never had anything even 5% different one way or the other from an excellent experience. And that is, I mean, in, in my world, that's extraordinary in the world of people are listening. That's not hyperbole. That's, that's a fact. And it's extraordinary. So he, whatever he's doing is, is amazing. And, and I would love to hear what do you have say?
0: John Lewis, look, I'm coming after you. I'm going to get <laughs> you on the show. And uh, how can we connect with you if we really resonated with your story today? Sure. We're looking to join a new group. Maybe we were interested in coming to work with you.
1: Sure. Um, well, we, I mean, we have all the social media platforms. I think um, the, the ones that I think people would be interested in related to me personally is, is the we have a tip, tip the kitchen Twitter page, which is tip underscore kitchen. Um, and where I I literally publish all of our numbers every week wow. of all the restaurants, including revenue, everything, just to show how that system works.
0: Is this a closed group for your employees? Is it open? To no, the this group? is the public. Ah, I mean, I've, I've been publishing
1: that. our like literally our, our revenue, um, yeah. which I was taught never tell anybody the numbers you're doing and this and that i don't give a shit that's i, I want people to know that's
0: like my dream for and i hope and i encourage and people will say why would you share your, your plan for the future you're gonna have a, i want more people to do this that's the whole sure. point um i think open book management needs to be something that doesn't just end at our four walls mm-hmm. i think open book management needs to be open to the industry so we can look and share and help each other and and literally have all ships rise with the tide i mean right? we're, we're over What's the, the bad hump? thing that will happen
1: right we're over the hump my company's yeah. over the hump we survived yeah. covid we're very successful we've been doing great business and i don't think that's going to change and now it's i mean i believe it's our responsibility to try to to afford other people the same good opportunities that we've had by providing either information or or just the chance I love so that. that's what we do
0: patrick thank you so much man this this conversation was great uh there is no questioning you are unstoppable thank you sir cheers thank you there we go Another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Patrick Whalen, thank you so much for joining us, sharing your story, sharing your knowledge, and your mentorship. I really enjoyed this one today. Uh, and I, I think you're absolutely right with the issues in wage uh between front of house and back of house. And uh, th- that's just one of the many things that, are, that needs to change in our industry. And I think that I'm really excited about focusing more uh, or at least – including in the conversation, what needs to transform in our industry with the mission statement, inspire, empower and transform. I really want to start focusing on that transform element and to learn share perspective, not just what's broken, but what's broken. and What's the answer? How can we change this? And creating that awareness is something that just really uh, has me excited right now to it has breathed new energy into restaurant unstoppable. And I'm excited to be asking this question to more people in the industry. And I hope you're excited as well. So there's not much happening this week over at Restaurant Stoppable Network as far as events go, but we are still very busy. Uh, what my focus right now is is really trying to get clarity around the strategy going forward at Restaurant Stoppable and just being much more intentional, creating systems. Uh, and removing myself, creating those layers between myself and the work so I can do what I love to do, which is connect with people in the physical world, share stories, and just get out there and just engage with the industry. And on that note, I need help. One of the things I'm really not good at is interfacing with the digital world. I don't like to be in my phone, I don't like to be on a computer, I don't like to work like that. That's not me. But I have to admit, it is very important to be engaged with the digital world and to be present on the digital world. So I'm looking for somebody to represent me digitally. So I'm putting this out there. Uh, If you need help, you got to let the universe know where you need help. And this is where I need help. So if you're somebody who's passionate about PR, social media, copywriting, and just creating digital content, then please reach out to me because you could maybe help out with restaurant unstoppable i mean i think the the ideal candidate that i'm looking for is somebody who maybe has an interest in starting their own firm and they're looking for exposure and that's what i can do for you i don't have a lot of extra cash flow right now but we can figure something out so if that sounds like something you're interested in please reach out to me let's take restaurant unstoppable and let's take this mission to inspire empower and transform the industry to the next level all right guys uh that's it Uh, help me spread the word about what I'm looking for and uh, until next time peace out